0: This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned. and make profit in the event those securities rise in value we recommend to consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, that's B-L-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you're listening to episode 214. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes and Spotify. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Special thank you to our sponsors for today's episode, Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg That's s-t-r-e-a-m-r-g co backslash P-M-C. And quarter. Whose mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Visit your app store of choice to try it out. And that's quarter Q U A R T R. We are excited to host our first in-person event in nearly three years. The Planet Microcap Showcase is back in Las Vegas on May 3rd through the 5th, 2022 at Bally's Hotel and Casino. It's time to see each other. It's time to network in person. Let's make it all happen in the entertainment and business capital of the world. For more information, please go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcat podcast, I spoke with Emily Paxia. She is the co-founder and managing director at Poseidon Investment Management. I've been doing interviews with cannabis investors and companies since 2014. To say the industry has been volatile would be an understatement. Uh, There's been a lot of excitement about potential legalization. Anxiety, it's not done yet. It's felt like we've been in this purgatory forever. Uh, once and for all, I wanted to understand why the cannabis industry has made me feel that way, what, where we are currently at from an investor perspective and what the future holds. There's no better person to help me answer these questions than Emily Paxson. I've known Emily since 2015 when she spoke at one of our investor events, and her fund, Poseidon, is one of the longest-running dedicated cannabis investment funds. She's the perfect guest to gain some clarity about why cannabis may still be a generational investing opportunity. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 214 of the Planet Microcap podcast, Now, please enjoy my conversation with Emily Paxia. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Alpha Sets. stream r-g dot co backslash pmc. That's streamr dot co backslash p-m-c. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And I'm really excited for today's guest, who this is like a blast from the past in more ways than one that we'll, you'll hear in a second. But um, our guest uh, was actually a featured speaker at one of our investor conferences, I think back in 2015, 2016. So uh, I, I've been following her growth over the years, and uh, it's 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 grown. Let's just say that. And so, (laughs) so, so with that, I'd like to introduce our guest today. It is Emily Paxia. She's the co-founder and managing director at Poseidon Investment Management. Emily, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. And thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be back in the universe. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: It's, It's great. It's great to have you back. And, you know, we were just talking offline before we get into everything that we're going to talk about today. You, you verified that this is the actual ticket from, 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 uh, from, oh my gosh, I'm blanking, from from Woodstock, because your dad was also there with, with not necessarily with my dad, but they were (laughs) all, but, or who knows, I'll I'll have to ask my dad after we're done recording, but, um, so this is verified, this is the ticket.
1: That is the ticket, and um, yeah, our dad was there, and he was in the movie. And uh, based on his re, I remember. Well, he's no longer with us, but when when he was alive, I remember watching the movie with him, and he was like, "I remember that lady. I remember that guy." <laughs> so he he had a remarkable memory, considering. Uh, how much partying I think was going on at the event, but yeah, Yeah,
0: just those three days alone. It's like, all right, because of those three days uh, memories, uh, we'll we'll see. But uh, so that's great. I I love that. So, so the the reason I really wanted to have you on today is uh, maybe we'll just cut right to the chase. We'll get into your background investment criteria and whatnot in, in a little bit, but I haven't done a macro cannabis. What the heck is going on? How should I understand what's going on? I mean, you know, every, everyone, I think, thought by now, especially with the Democrat control over all three branches that uh, that that cannabis would now be rescheduled and everyone's been waiting for the great rescheduling. Um, so what, what's going on? How, how should how should fellow investors out there think about cannabis and, and what's happening in the space?
1: Yeah, cannabis is this very unique opportunity for investors to to review and contemplate at this particular time because what you have is an industry that's demonstrating growth and traction, and also it's tearing down walls of stigma and um, bipartisanship. It's uh, it's it's really a remarkable industry when you dig into the fundamentals of these businesses, and then yet when you look at the access via the public markets. It's telling a completely different story, and so I think those of us who are very active and um, you know informed investors, we know that that's where opportunities lie when there are not consensus around things. So, just to give you some broad strokes about the industry, we now have thirty-seven medical states with legal programs for medical use, and then we have count we have uh, over a dozen states that are uh, adult use that are open. And so, and this is everything from California to Illinois. And now we're on the precipice of New Jersey opening their adult use market and then New York following in 2023, not to mention, you know, countless others across the United States. And we also have 70 markets globally with some form of cannabis legalization. So things have gone quickly since we last uh, kind of met each other in 2015 and um, there's a lot going on. And then you're seeing what you're seeing is these companies are essentially starting to look like wellness consumer product companies, and yet they're trading at value multiples. When you look at where their EBITDA is trading or their top line is trading versus their growth rates, it's just a really interesting thing because we have this overhang where you very well set it up that at the federal level, cannabis is still considered a schedule one narcotic, which means that there are zero potential benefits to it, which we now know is categorically incorrect. However, we've seen some political machinations around what's going on on the federal level, even to get banking reform. And so it's kind of kept cannabis in this really interesting box where institutional capital is not as can't access it as easily. Um, we, we don't have access to the US listed exchanges, the NASDAQ or the NICE. So these US names are playing in the OTC sandbox. And you've got only really individual investors holding it up. You also have custody issues, which came on the back of some of the drama in the beginning of 2021 with Credit Suisse pulling people out of the market um, by saying they were going to pull people off the platform and other institutions did the same thing. And so you've got all of these kind of external structural issues around accessing the cannabis names, but you have this heavily de-risked Component to the industry where you see strong fundamentals and growth and good execution. And so it's just this really interesting time for anybody who's really interested in leaning in and doing the work to get into the sector. So
0: at the federal level, like what is going on? Like, I think that like that's the part that drives me and I'm sure others that might be listening at follow the space just absolutely nuts. I mean, I did hear one theory when I was talking to one investor, how like it's strategic because can you imagine all the, the, like the extra tax revenue, I guess that they can charge to some of these companies. I don't know. I could be completely wrong, but you follow much closer than me, but what, what, what is going on in their brains? Like, just get it done already. Like this is enough.
1: It's a, it's a gross disconnect of what their constituents want and what they're doing from a politician standpoint. Um, Congresswoman Mace, who's a Republican, by the way, has recently become the most articulate and outspoken about trying to drive progress at the federal level around the industry. And this is what we're talking about. I mean, And by the way, is also backed by Amazon and the Koch brothers. And so we talk a lot about this in, in the cannabis world. For a while, it was an echo chamber. It was, it was the common bedfellows of Democrats and more liberal people and liberal companies. And now we're really seeing that we've jumped the fence and it's everybody except for as congresswoman may said except for everybody in washington so there's this weird disconnect of what the people in the united states want this issue is pulling above 64 percent and by the way in a country that's so divided on things like wearing masks or whatever it might be there's one issue that is quite uniting and that is cannabis over 64 percent of people think that medical cannabis should be legal in the or sorry adult use Over 90% on medical use. I mean, that's an overwhelming alignment of the people now. And then you have the politicians. So I think there's a couple of things. There could be counter lobbying going on because we do see that in markets where cannabis legalization occurs, you see a drop in opiate addiction. That is not good for business on the pharmaceutical side. It is what it is. So there could be some things going on with that. There also is this kind of resistance on the behalf of the politicians to truly understand where cannabis sits in society instead of viewing it as a gateway drug. If they spend some time, they would understand that cannabis actually can be used to get people unaddicted or through it. off addiction of opiates and other way more deleterious things and onto a path of recovery. And it's also better for you than other things, um, including alcohol, if you look at the studies of the social impact. So the politicians are not doing the work. The other thing I think is that they are wisely holding a very popular ace card in their back pocket as we are entering into a midterm cycle. This, in, this country is about to get very loud in terms of where we're going for November. And I think that having an issue like this that you can kind of hold and then maybe make a big move as you're getting closer to the day of, of elections, that is something I think we could be seeing here. That
0: is literally, that was how I was like, like game theorying it out too. It's like, okay, they're this is probably something that they're just, they're like, it's like when you're when you when you think about, you know, uh you know, something that, you know, will always be there six months down the line. I oh, will get to it. We know everyone agrees. It's like, OK, fine. Let's let's pull that one out once uh once we get to where we really need it. Right. Yeah. like It makes total sense.
1: Yeah. That's the play to call. That's the play they want to call when it's going to matter most instead of now. And then, you know, the voters, we all have short term am- you know, memory issues here in this country. So you do something now and we won't remember it by November or I will, because this is my life's work, but other people won't.
0: I mean, look, you, uh, since uh, I, I would argue since 2014, you know, everyone's like, oh, we've only, you know, there's just been one bull cycle for the general market. When it comes to cannabis since 2014, there's been what, like three or four cycles already, just like the oh 2014 God. rise and then 2017. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, uh, how do you, how do you handle that? I mean, that's, that's a lot of volatility <laughs> to deal with.
1: We've had very, you know, we, we've, very much hung on to this concept of the Gartner hype cycle, which has been applied to technology and other emerging markets where you see this, frothy rise, as you articulated, and then the drawdown, and then the slope of kind of reality and growth and maturation. We have a bit of a external driver, which is the lack of institutional capital. And we think that's going to create another big cycle before we see the slope of, um, you know, what is the slope of real return or whatever. Um, But the, you know, and so we've been, we found ourselves in kind of like the trough of despair (laughs) um, more than we'd like to in this market, just because of these External factors, but it, it's interesting. You know, it's like the way I think about it is all of these challenges are moats and they're all opportunities as an allocator for us to get capital to work. Last February, when the markets were running quite hot in cannabis, because as you pointed out in the beginning, there was this blue wave and people thought, okay, blue wave means there will be progress in cannabis. We've since found out that's actually not true. But, you know, I turned to my brother, who's my co founder, and I was like, did we miss? the last bite before this like run-up of institutional capital does come. And we, t- we talked about it and it's almost like be careful what you wish for because on came <laughs> our next bear cycle, very ferociously and viciously. And we've been in another bear cycle. Now the last bear cycle in cannabis was 25 months. Then we had a brief reprieve of that in a very nice little bull cycle. And now we're back in a bear, but I do think we're on the precipice with these new markets opening up and people kind of readjusting. they thinking about you know what? Great businesses have been built in spite of the fragmentation and the challenges of not having federal regulation and reform. And so we'll just keep building great businesses and all the while get to allocate capital at these value multiples, knowing that there's a lot of upside coming or believing that there's a lot of upside coming.
0: I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for quarter. And that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. All right. So now we're going to take, I'm going to take a couple steps back because I want to set you up to get to some of this stuff because, you know, now that- You know, we have this potential happening with the midterms and and also you've been following the space now where we've been able to kind of suss out the pretenders from the actual contenders who and and there have been also some great winners even uh, during this time. But let's take a step back to your background. You know, how where did your passion for investing come from? And then especially, you know, in campus.
1: Mhm. Yeah, so my background was in psychology. That's what I studied. And then I went into business and in, in consulting and research. And so I was always working with companies to consult them through either massive shifts in consumer behavior or oh. through pro- like launching their new products or services or targeting new demographics. And my clients during those times were everything from American Express to Viacom, to Ralph Lauren and Luxottica. you know, massive shifts from how do you get people to cons- consumers to shop for clothing or sunglasses or glasses online? How do you get consumers to shift from uh, cable viewing to time-shifted viewing to over-the-top viewing on applications? How do you get people to shift their perceptions around how they utilize credit cards versus not i mean so many different things and so that's when i first really um when i moved to san francisco from new york and i saw legal cannabis stores and i saw people lining up outside that defied the stereotypes of cannabis consumers i.e stoners which Some people use that word pejoratively. I use that word in a loving way because who doesn't like people who buy cannabis when you're a cannabis investor. And, um, you know, I saw people lining up though, and it defied my my own stereotypes having grown up on the East coast where there was no whisper of a legal market. And, um, and that's when I called my brother and I said, I think this is the generate the opportunity of a generation. Like this is Steve Jobs in the garage. This is you know the things that we've seen being developed before us. And you always kind of like when, I think when you're an entrepreneur, you kind of have like a little pang of wishing that you'd been around in that time so you could have seized that opportunity. This is our opportunity. And so Morgan and I, Morgan came from you know UBS and then went on to a, a, a different wealth management group in in Rhode Island and. And so that's when we put it together and started to invest with my kind of qualitative business analysis skills and his more um, traditional investment skills. And it's been a great team.
0: Awesome. Uh, I love that story. Uh, So at the beginning, you know, take us back to that time in the 2014, 2015, you're just launching Poseidon. You're starting to source ideas and look, you know, what were some of the things you were looking for that you're like, okay, this, this might work, this might be okay. And maybe some of the lessons learned since launching in 2014, it launched in 2014, right? For 2015. Yeah, okay.
1: we started investing our own capital in the sector in 2013, launched 2013. the fund. Yeah, we launched the fund to outside capital in January, 2014, when Colorado opened its doors. And we watched it just, that was the first bubble to your point on the public stock side. Our first position Um, was a UK uh, pharmaceutical company that is a very well-known one. Now it's actually got an FDA um, product that is approved. So exciting things like that have happened. Um, And, you know, at that time also Canada had their federal market that was getting ready to open for adult use. And so we were able to invest in what are some of the biggest names now in the Canadian markets or into companies that got acquired by those companies. Um, so we were, we were just really kind of looking at the sector looking at the, in our world, policy is our business. So we have to understand what's coming next because those are the catalysts that drive not only market action in the public markets, but also growth. Those are our levers of growth or stability in our market. And so we really started to dig in on the regulatory situation, really understood how the states were going to be approaching this and what it would mean in terms of an actual market. Because for example, you look at Colorado, that's an actual market that you can invest into. Vermont has legal cannabis, but it's not like a business investment opportunity if you're a fund seeking outsized returns. It might be nice if it's in your backyard. Anyway, you have to think about all of those things and then understanding Canada, especially because we knew that was going to be a big uh, legal federal market, and so it would ha- and that would also have a different flavor in terms of how it worked. So we analyzed all of those things. We also looked at the ecosystem and divided up what we considered were the subsectors of it because. Investing in cannabis doesn't mean just investing in the growing and selling of cannabis. It's investing in the infrastructure around it, which can include everything from enterprise software solutions, data analytics, um, even cultivation technology, which has then been used in cannabis and applied elsewhere because it helps to improve your yields and your margins. So there's a lot of things on that side, which we call the ancillary side. And then there's the entire operating company side or plant touching side. And so we divided this up into the universe and oh, even like things like ad tech and media because you can't use traditional platforms to market to consumers about your companies or even your financial products that you may have. Um, So you've got to use these different platforms and have different data points for that. So all of that goes by way saying we divided it up and started to invest uh, across those different aspects, subsectors of it. And what we really did with that is we looked for what we thought were the best teams in each of those subsectors. And we had also created what we thought were kind of percentage allocations we'd like to have around that. So on the operating side, we'd want to have way more of the pie allocated to that. And then on the ancillary side, it would it would depend on the aspect of the ancillary vertical. So. That was really how we got into it, and it served us very well because in our subsequent strategies, we had learned in that first fund which aspects of the market had the most stickiness, most retention, and best growth and scalability. And so then we just tightened our thesis in the subsequent investment uh, funds that we've launched on the sector. Absolutely.
0: So I pretty much answered my, my next question on, you know, the ideal investment, but I guess digging it, digging into a, a little bit more as to, you know, what you're mostly looking for. I mean, what does that ideal investment look like? I, we're not talking names here, but just in yeah. generalities, like what you're, what you're really looking at.
1: Um, so, I mean, it, it's a common expression, but I think it's common for a good reason, which is the, the, the first thing we start with is team. And in our industry, especially on the operating side where it can be more capital intensive, CapEx intensive or capital intensive, we look for teams that are savvy about whatever field that they're in, be it technology or plant touching. And then we look at the teams who we also think are going to be good shepherds of capital through corporate governance, um, through financial controls, and then also through the ability to actually raise capital. Because um, in in our industry, we have these, as you pointed out very quickly, we talked about, we have these cycles and you just have to be very wise about raising the right capital at the right time in the market, having those resources and then being able to carry it through when sentiment turns against you. And it's not a popular sector to be investing in. And, you know, we kind of get lumped in with with crypto because we're probably one of the newest and most emerging markets in the United States, especially, but globally too. And it's funny because we have this kind of like counter cycle to crypto where when we tend to be doing well, crypto has been having a difficult time. Crypto is having a hot, I mean, the last year was so hot and crypto and cannabis was having on a on a market cycle, a very difficult bear market, but the business fundamentals continue to get better and better as we, as we go. So, um, so yeah, so it's just an interesting thing to look at how these founders navigate it. Um, We also, you know, we really do like, in no other world would you want to tackle a full vertical the way we do in cannabis. I mean, it's nine to 10 businesses in one, company and then in these like siloed markets too. So it's very difficult to get the economies of scale that you would see in another industry. The only analog that's even remotely close would be wine and spirits because of still some of the outdated laws and in some of the markets like New Jersey around importing uh, and distribution of, of these products. But where I'm going with that is that we, in spite of that, the operators who, who, really execute on the full vertical or have very interesting business profiles that will only be improved when tax reform actually occurs at the federal level. And I can talk a bit about that, but there's a lot of things that will unlock a lot of really interesting growth and depth in the quality of these companies. And um, and so, yeah, so we still really like that aspect of it. And we look for companies that have that kind of executional moat, which will make it difficult for competition to just enter the market and take that from them. Yeah, let's go on.
0: Let's go on that 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 um down that rabbit hole about tax reform and how that might unlock some value. Can you explain what that means and and what will be reformed?
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, so, two eighty e is our tax code at the federal level, which layers on another level of taxes to these businesses, where an operating business has an effective rate of tax rate of about seventy percent it's really extraordinary what these businesses pay all the way through. Um- and 280E actually has a really fun story, fun. It has an interesting story where a um, a very successful drug dealer in the 80s, and who, this person happened to be, I think, related to the cartel, but was dealing cocaine in particular, was writing off ordinary business expenses, but was also filing taxes on his business. So then the 280E code was written in to um, make it such that you cannot write off ordinary business expenses uh, when you are in the business of a schedule one narcotic or drug. And cannabis is still living in that schedule. And so therefore cannabis still (laughs) has this 280E tax code applied to it, which is very expensive. And for a while because there was no banking, um, people were actually paying their taxes, which were pretty extraordinary amounts in cash to the federal government. And then the federal government was actually charging them a fee for paying in cash. So (laughs) it's just remarkable that that this industry has gone through this and that it's still here. Now we can now we have much more banking support in spite of the lack of reform on the federal level. But there are banks that are stepping up using very strict KYC AML and working with the industry. And we're able to do this. But it, it was a really it's been an interesting ride on the tax front. Very good.
0: Is is there anything else on the tax front that maybe you are typical questions that you ask. Like, I want to follow up on that just to be sure we cover it completely, but is that at a, at a high level, that's what people should
1: understand? That's what people should understand. And so okay. even if you're looking at these businesses, you're looking at the EBITDA profiles, you're looking at the growth. I mean, just it's, you know, the best in class, you know, they have to operate with 280E as part of their lives. Right. And then we're all just, you know, the day that that changes... These businesses are going to have so much more cash, free cash flow. It's just going to change everything and profitability. Um, So it's just like an optionality that's sitting there waiting to be unlocked on these businesses. It's a really unique set of circumstances.
0: Got All right. So, another question I have when we're looking at cannabis as it exists right now in 2022, yeah. in the past, it's always been kind of like this Canada versus US situation. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, Canada's running wild. By the way, when you say I say things articulately, that's a very nice compliment, but I know I don't. So, I appreciate that when you do that. But, anyways, Canada running wild and then US kind of backwards a little bit. You know, like, how should we think about Canada versus US? It, it, when it comes to cannabis right now?
1: Okay, so I would say the US is the story of tremendous market opportunity um, and operational excellence in terms of focusing on. Um, careful use of resources, preservation of shareholder value in in considering financing and careful selection of uh, acquisitions and accretive acquisitions. I think Canada is an example, Canada as a market, and by the way, I grew up, looking at Canada from like my town <laughs> very close to uh, Niagara Falls Canada and um but Canada has a boom bust cycle history with like mining and you know there's just a number of oil and gas and and I would say can- cannabis or when you're up on Bay Street, which is like their Wall Street, they call it, oh, the weed trade, you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, it's very adorable. But, you know, I feel like the weed trade has also, in their words, seen, you know, kind of a boom bust cycle. A uh, lot of they benefited from the, I mean, this is another bizarre paradox of cannabis is that Canadian companies have access to our U.S. listed exchanges because they have a federally legal program. And so what does that mean? That means that they have access to institutional capital. Their cost of capital is far lower. They've been able to um, get a lot more in terms of resources. And so you saw, and also corporate investment. Like you've seen corporations like Constellation invest into it, Altri invest into it, into the Canadian companies. I'm not going to say which ones, um, but you've seen them making moves in the sector, but it's been... That's what it looks like to have a federally legal market. You have that access to capital. And when you see that, you are able to make acquisitions. But I think that one of the benefits of having not as much access to capital in the United States is prudence in the allocation and the um, use of those resources. And I think you've seen that in these operators in the U.S. So those are kind of the differences. In Canada, you don't really see the EBITDA positive uh, profiles. Um, You've just seen a lot more consolidation. You saw a lot of funded capacity being built. That's another thing to note is, you know, when you're digging in on these companies is understanding if they're following GAAP or IFRS, because it matters in our market where you have biological assets and how those are being contemplated. And so I would be digging in on if that's IFRS, I would be digging in on their inventory levels. Just a note.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because also like on this, I mean, not that specifically, but just how, (laughs) but just how in Canada, like this is what a federally free, like look at the CSC; they built an exchange basically on cannabis, right? On cannabis. Not psychedelics, um, but, and crypto, but cannabis, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, And, and how now they can get secondary listings on the, on, on OTC and QX and QB and it's fine because they file with CDAR and it's all good to go. Right. Yeah. Um, But. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. You're saying,
1: Oh no, I was just thinking we should call, we should rename that to the cannabis securities exchange. (laughs) (laughs) I know some of the guys up there. I, I don't think they would, I don't think they would mind. Uh, <laughs> no, I've met them. They're very enterprise and they're very smart about the fact that they, the CSE saw an opportunity and they yeah. embraced it. And that's very entrepreneurial of them. I give uh-huh. them credit for that.
0: And, and to take it even a step further, the one thing I love about the Canadian um, public markets just in general is that, yeah, there has always been this idea there's a little bit of the wild west kind of situation, but when it comes to smaller companies, like what an incredible ecosystem like whether you're looking at the CSE, TSX Venture, even the big board TSX, like it is a really great place. Like if you're a smaller company and you want to be public so you can get access to public capital, I'm not trying to plug anything. Okay. I promise there's no CSE, no one, they're not, nobody's a sponsor here. No, so I'm just saying, if you're a smaller company, and you're looking to access capital and, and institutional money. I mean, Canada is a really great place to look if you're not looking for more than 5 million. You know? I
1: think that it's. It, I think you raise a great point, and it also democratizes access to investing. Like when you're talking about private companies, it's typically unless you're kind of getting into some of these crowdfunding things, but it's limited to accredited investors. I'm a firm believer that people should have access to opportunities where they can create a step change in their wealth, and and crypto's been very good for that, but. A bit. I mean, talk about a wild west. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. and, and like, but I think that you're a, you're absolutely right, and I think it's why it's like TSXV venture. Like, I think that having those resources and and also the ability to have a different currency, which is public stock instead of just cash, like there's different ways that you can build and grow companies by leveraging those kind of more, yeah, ventury kind of entrepreneurial exchanges up there in Canada. So I give them a ton of credit too. And I'm, I'm glad that Canada has been a part of my life story, but also in my cannabis investing story.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. uh, So Emily, I have to ask you this question as (laughs) as an institutional allocator in cannabis since (laughs) 2014. Yep. What's been the most annoying part, investing in cannabis? Like some that every night you're like, why? Like, this is so annoying. I love this space, but this one thing is just drives me crazy.
1: Uh, I, I get very, <laughs> it's funny. I get very uncomfortable in the frothy times because I just, here's where I come from on that. and I, And I actually talked a lot about this last year with the meme stocks. By the way, like, again, I kind of love that because it was a group of individual investors who were trying to kind of take control where Wall Street has always had control, right? And um, I saw this really frustrating headline by Bloomberg yesterday where they were like, the adults are back in the room and the meme stocks are down and all this stuff. But here's where I I come from. And, And when I've seen the frothy cycles, the allocation of capital into the sector is great, But what I really, really want to see this next time when we go back into a bull cycle is the allocation to the prudent and best operators. And so what has made me crazy in an emerging market is a bit of that cow. The cowboy thing is great because like, look, we've got to like be bold. Fortune favors the bold, but you also have to be wise and you also have to do the work. And I get very uncomfortable and it does frustrate me when I see a lot of capital flowing where it's just going to get destroyed because when I see that, then it it scares off capital from coming back. And I hate when I think about where if if this there was this cycle, and I definitely will not name names, but some of these companies were RTOing, reverse takeovering, or going public in Canada at these extraordinary valuations, and so much money went into those companies, and it's all gone because they were not prudent operators. We didn't touch it and if i think when i think about where that capital if it had been directed in, into good companies with good and careful operators who are building real businesses the job the job creation that could have been made the tax revenue that could have been generated the economic impact of all of that could have been so useful especially now looking back, that we—if I'd known we were going to be going through a freaking global pandemic, I mean, there's just so many things. So that's the thing in an emerging market. I don't think it's just cannabis. I just think it's emerging markets in general. I just wish people would really be thoughtful about where they're directing their capital.
0: Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Despite those frothy markets make everybody uncomfortable. Ooh.
1: Right. Like, so, like, yeah. like like, like
0: <laughs> I know I know it gets frothy when I get texted from my friends like, hey, you looked at the cannabis recently or this ABCC ABCD stock. I'm like, up oh, top, there it is. <laughs> like, oh yeah. There go. You know. Um, so, I mean, right now, where, where are we at then right now in, in the cycle of cannabis? You know, I, I think, I mean, we've talked about a lot of different things. we talked about where we're at federally, all, all that stuff. Yeah. But, you know, for those that are not like, okay, great, Bob, Bob, Emily, you guys set the stage. Thank you. Okay. Where are we at? Where are we at right now? And how should we think about it now moving ahead as we go through 2022?
1: Where we are now is we're we're reestablishing kind of our new floor or foundation to the industry, um, where the business case is being proven for it. We have the economic impact. Like last year was 92 billion in the United States alone. We're going to go over 100 billion this year. All of that points the direction that it gets harder and harder for this industry to get walked back by regulation. Um, we've got the bipartisan support around it. So whether or not anything happens at the federal level, at least we just get to keep going. In the, It's the devil we know, which is a fragmented market that doesn't have federal support. Fine. So where we are is we're going to continue to build businesses um, you know, Abner Curtin is a colleague. He's an investor and a CEO in the industry, and he always says this is a step, a stair-step market, not a linear growth story. And so, what we've had is we had markets like Illinois and Arizona open, and you know, when those markets open, they see over 100% year-over-year growth, and then they kind of normalize down into 30, 40, 50% growth, depending on where they are in their cycle and how many doors are opening. Um, and, you know, so where we are now is we're waiting for more of that stair-step growth because we've got these big markets, as we've talked about, that are going to be opening, unlocking massive populations of people who've never had access to legal cannabis. And at the same time, these operators are have never been more experienced and ready to navigate that sheer volume of people through doors. I mean, some of these doors, not naming any companies, will do $50 million in a year at at the downs on the minimum. I mean, that's a box that is doing a tremendous amount of retail with, EBITDA, with it. So it's just, and great gr- gross margins. And so, you know, you think... Um, we're about to go on to a stair-step story again. This has been a bit of a foundation setting and accumulating of assets. We're going to continue to see um, more accretive m and and consolidation as people are kind of gathering um, power. I think one of the, the negative impacts of not having more reform is that it's made, made it harder for small businesses because they don't have access to normal banking, but the big guy, guys and ladies do. Uh, they do have that access. And so they'll just continue to consolidate power. So that's where we're at. And I think we're about to see stair-step growth coming. And I know too that there's institutional capital that is, they're creating carve-out strategies where they're going to, continue, going to start participating more. And then the one thing we haven't really talked about is the story of ETFs and cannabis, which are the conduits of institutional capital at this time. One of them being very big, the rest of us still trying to grow. But I think that those are going to be some of the big levers of growth into these names as these companies start to show really interesting numbers again.
0: Absolutely. Quick topic divergence, but it's another, yes. but it's one that I'm sure you've been asked a lot, and I'm, I'm gonna guess it makes you cringe a little bit. So exactly. here we go. Are you ready for a cringeworthy question? Yes. What do you Always. say? If, What do you say to those, those folks that make the comment, you know, is cannabis starting to become commoditized? Is this a commoditized thing going on? Was that worthy? I don't know. No, Not moderately. Okay. All right. Even better. Even better. Okay, good. So Uh, what what do you say to them?
1: Um, So we, we have been investing this whole time, knowing that at some point cannabis is a commodity, like a grape is a commodity, like a hop is a commodity. Um, And so what we're building towards is a consumer product, Industry. And so, how do you preserve value in a consumer product industry as you have different tiers of brand development and product form factor? So, today it's still the most massive category in our market. We use headset, which, by the way, full disclosure, we are an investor and it is private, but I feel like I should mention it because it's a resource to investors. If you go onto their blog, you can see um, they do put out lots of market data every month and they have a blog and it's just really interesting. So um, that's more of a resource just so everybody knows. Um, but it is um, where is I going with that? Yeah, it is a commodity. And so like right now in California, wholesale prices of grade a sun-grown cannabis are going for $300 a pound. That is a commodity, but what is not a commodity is the beverage it becomes The gummy it becomes, the tincture, the salve, whatever form factor you're looking at, the vape product, which is, by the way, vape, now that we've all discerned that vape gate was unnecessary and we threw out the baby with the bathwater, lab tested products are relatively safe. And we know that Gen Z, which is, by the way, the cannabis native consumer generation, they came into the workforce with cannabis substantially legal. They are allocating resources into cannabis over alcohol. Um, Gen Z is very into the vapor category and especially Gen Z females, um, which is a great growing category. And I think that those, that is where you avoid commoditization is through productization through branding, and through retailing of cannabis in an intelligent way, just like you would with any other active ingredient or input. Cannabis is just one of those. But I do think just on another side to that, I mean, you look at grapes, grapes grow in the field in Northern California. Cannabis is also a Northern California wonderful crop that we have here. Um, And so the other way you create a um, pricing mode around things is through experience. And so there's going to be continued building out of tourism in a totally new and fresh way. You see consumption lounges coming to some of the dispensaries in Las Vegas, which is a perfect fit for that town. In Northern California and other in coastal California, you will be seeing similar tasting experiences to what we see in the wine industry. And and it all goes very well with... um, uh, good cooking. So I think <laughs> which are other things that are notable in those regions. So, you know, I think there's a lot of things that'll happen. So we're not just going straight to uh, you know, this is a cut flour industry. This is much more than that.
0: Got it. All right. So another quick topic diverges, but we've been kind of touching on it a little bit for the, for let's say the average retail investor that might be listening to our to our conversation right now, when they're looking at various public company names. Uh, which again, we won't be naming any here. But yep. what are what are some of the red flags that they should be wary of and and be just be careful when you're hunting in the in this area?
1: Okay. Um. So the first one is the way they audit the f- company. So we prefer Gap audit. We think it's the kind of a more of a standard that we like. But if but again, I would be watching those inventory levels on the companies. Um. I would look at their track record of missing versus hitting on their quarters and kind of what happens around that. Um, other flags, I'd be look at how they're structuring acquisitions and also how they're raising money into the organization. Um, This hasn't been seen as much in the US operators, but in the Canadian operators, there were a lot of dilutive financings that went on. So you know, one of the things we always say is like, if a financing is too complex such that it becomes really difficult to understand, it's time to dig in a little bit more because there's usually something going on there. Like, why is it so complex? Well, maybe sometimes things require complex um, structuring and that's great. But just be wary of of how that can translate through to shareholder dilution. Um, So look at how they're raising money and how they're deploying their resources and look at their balance sheets. Some of the, and oh, this, I mean, you can always go to the company's websites and find out when they're doing their earnings calls. The other big flag is I just listen to how these management teams talk about the philosophies of how they're approaching their businesses. And some of the MSO leadership teams, again, won't say who, talk a lot about shareholder value. And so that's just one of the things in an emerging market where things are moving really quickly. I like to be very tuned in to how they're thinking about how they're building their business for a long-term success story. Um, That's what institutional capital will be looking for.
0: Yeah. I mean, if if there's one thing that that's definitely been somewhat of a detriment to this space has been some of the promoters out there, you know, Mm -hmm. in cannabis. And so it's just, you know, just looking out for the ones that are saying this is the next best thing since sliced bread kind of stuff. You know, I mean, that listen, charisma doesn't always necessarily mean that it's, you know, a snake oil salesman, but in this case, you know, just, you know, just look at everything, right. Do the full DD Uh, doesn't, doesn't hurt. Um, <laughs> Speaking of management, we have to go there, right? I mean, you, you met, we kind of, I just literally said, like, uh, you kind of got to be wary of these couple things. But I mean, I think that goes across the board. I think in, not just in microcast cannabis, but everything. But I mean, what are some of the, and you mentioned that you you listen to those conference calls if they do them. And if they're talking about, you know, long-term, we're still in a nascent industry, you know, we're still growing, growing, growing. Um, what, what are some other things that maybe folks could look for when, when they're either speaking with management, hearing management on a conference call, an interview? You know, what, what are some other things that they should be, you know, just look for on both sides, the good and the bad?
1: Speaking in, um, one of the things that I do, the best operators I know will be the first ones to confess that they have no like clear path to how the regulators are going to approach this both at the local state or across the local state and federal level. Um, I'm always a bit like put off or I'm put on high alert when someone's like, Interstate commerce will be here within 12 months. This is happening within 12 months, and I mean we we invest in resources at the federal level to try to understand and demystify where things are going. Um, and the thing, the only thing that is certain is that politicians will do what they need to do to get elected or to stay in office, and um, that can mean that they will change what they're doing any day of the week and um, will glom onto issues um, in different ways, depending on how the political winds are blowing. And so I would say that's a flag is anyone who speaks with absolute certainty about an outcome of a political situation is, uh, generally that's a flag to me, or I don't know if it's a flag, but I would just heavily discount it and put my own frame of reference around it and say, okay, but if they don't, if that doesn't happen, does this business still hold up?
0: But Emily, they might have a family member that's part of the certain political. No, I'm just kidding. But, anyways, so they might actually not. No, I'm just
1: kidding. Yeah. Well, we know that some of the politicians are very good at investing in and shorting things based on laws that they're about to pass. But that's, yep.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We won't go down that hole. (laughs) So, we're we're actually, uh, this is my favorite question that I love to ask all of our guests on the show. So, what would you say is an investing experience that really changed your career the most, um, in the last, in your entire career.
1: Yep. Yep. There's a very clear story. Um, so this is a venture story, but I think it's a story that has carried with me as I've actually joined, um, as a public board member of, a board member of a public company. Um, and the, the lesson I learned was if you come prepared, never let someone, um, talk you out of the conviction you have around holding your point in a, in, in an investment stance. So this is for people who are more activist investors or people who are looking at who's on the board of directors of companies and the quality of those folks in terms of holding uh, management to task. So one time we were invested, there's actually a fast company or was it fast or Inc. Uh, Will Yakowitz read it. There was a company, it was a venture company and the founder had a moment where um, let's just say he checked out and, uh, we had a board meeting and I was the youngest person on the board and I was also the only female. And I was raising some pretty strong uh, points of view about how quickly I thought we had to make some management changes and how quickly I thought we had to step in to correct the path the company was on. And, um, this comes down to the board composition discussion. The board was a little bit skewed to be in the favor of, of the founder who had checked out. And um, and I don't think that the, everyone had the best interest of the company slash the investors in mind. And I got kind of shamed down and I second-guessed myself and I quietly kind of stepped aside. And everything that I had been kind of you know putting forth as a concern came to fruition in the worst way possible. And I don't think there's a clearer lesson than when you know, when you've taken the time to do the work and you've got the strong points of view because of that, other words, you're well-prepared. Don't back down if you think what's happening in a company is wrong. And so I would say, yeah, look as so where does this play in as investors? I'd look at the quality of board members, the experience of the board members, serving as board members. And I would also um, look at the composition of the boards to make sure, for example, if you do, if these companies do have designs to uplist to the NASDAQ, you have to have a certain number of board members and also a certain number of independent board members, which is better for investors to see that kind of a composition. So that's another thing I would look at, but that was one of the biggest investment learnings in my life is never to kind of get talked down and put in a corner on something and and to keep fighting for it. Because um, if you have a strong conviction on it, you're probably onto something there. I mean,
0: talk about corporate governance uh, in a nutshell right there. I mean, all about how how's it been going on the cannabis side? I mean, have have been more of these companies started to understand that they need to have more independent directors or is it still, you know, the country club folk, you know? No, you know what I it's mean? got,
1: yeah. I mean, I have the pleasure of serving on several boards that I think are, when I get to our quarterly board meetings are some of the best uh, um, hours spent in my, career and my day because I get to sit in the room with people, our companies, and largely because we've written it into our term sheets or have worked closely with founders that have respect for this process. But we've got people who've had amazing exits in their lives, amazing uh, investment lifespans of running very successful hedge funds and being activist investors. Um, people who come from companies like four, I mean, great companies with great experience of serving on boards of directors. So I get to learn a lot in those boards. And I would say our companies, the ones especially that are very successful do have really great corporate governance and have been set up really well around that. So, and that's something we've worked really hard on as investors, um, and, and it is something we do look at with the public companies, too, is the composition of those boards. So it's gotten a lot better. And and frankly, when I see some of these other companies um, that are non-endemic to the cannabis industry, that you can only, if you run through some of the IPOs of the last two years and some of them have not gone so well, you can see some of the missteps of those boards of directors. And, I mean, even the Theranos story, I feel like we can speak about that. That's public domain. Um, that was all governance. That gone that went awry and so i just don't think it's a cannabis only thing i think in general we have to have better corporate governance and and better consideration of how that impacts the shareholder base
0: 100 all right so we're we're pretty much there so i mean uh, let's final thoughts final words of wisdom for folks listening to this you know that maybe you know are down 90 percent in their cannabis portfolios you know make them feel that all will be okay Will it be okay
1: um, there? Are, I mean, I'll just say <laughs> this, like I'm fully invested into this industry. Um, my whole life is in this industry. And so I'm not saying that from a point of like, it, you know, obviously I want it to work, but I also believe it will. Um, and and if we didn't have the strong businesses that I'm seeing I wouldn't feel so, so confident in it, but right now I feel like what we're in on is like the best kept secret in the investment landscape right now. So I'm pretty mm-hmm. optimistic.
0: See, that's a great place to it right there. Emily, where, where can our audience go and find more information to follow you on social media and also uh, Poseidon Investment Management?
1: Yeah. So you can go to Management.com or poseidon.partners. It'll take you to the same place. Um, I'm at MPax1 on Twitter, which is E-M-P-A-X-1. You can find us on LinkedIn. And those are about it because we're SEC registered. So we're very careful about our platforms. (laughs) So, oh, I also have a podcast too, which is found on Spotify. It's called The High Rise. The High Rise.
0: There's not enough cannabis puns out there that can be put into use. I I love it. I love it. Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. podcast. podcast.